The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Go ahead and go to God's Word together. Well, the, this is part two of a sermon I introduced that was called The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, part one. A lot of scriptures involved, but really focusing in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. So this morning, our sermon is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, part 2. And we will continue specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. We did a little introduction, asked some thought-provoking questions to get us thinking about the Gospel. And I have six points. We actually got through the first two, so we'll finish those last four points that will walk us through 1 Corinthians 15 this morning so that we can better understand the gospel. Just by way of reminder, maybe you weren't here or maybe uh, we just need a refresher of what I talked about last time in part one of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read a verse from 1 Peter where Peter exhorted believers to be sober or be alert or always be vigilant in our thinking, particularly our spiritual thinking. Do not fall into a spiritual stupor and be lazy in your spiritual awareness. So that was a good command that we took heed from Peter. So we need to be sober-minded all the time and stay focused. And then we also pointed out staying focused on the priorities of the Christian faith. And then I pointed out that we have an enemy. His name is Satan. He is real. He's evil. He's a supernatural or supernatural creature. And he's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of God's people. He's the enemy of the truth. He's the enemy of the gospel. He never sleeps nor slumbers. So we read 1 Peter 5.8 to warn us and give us that reminder. And we talked about how Satan attacks God's people through different ways, different means. Through deception through destructive behavior at times he can be the author of. And we also noted one that's very subtle that we forget about sometimes, and that's through distraction. Satan is a master of distraction to get our eyes off focus. That's exactly what he wants. Jesus wants us to be on focus. And we gave the illustration of Mary who was on focus during the Bible study when Jesus was teaching, and Martha was not. She was distracted, and Jesus said that, Martha, Martha. You are distracted. We don't want to be distracted. We want to be focused, and we want to be focused on the most important thing in the world, the most important topic, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are distracted. I think about the things that we are distracted about today in the world, in the news, in conversation, but even it's trickled into the church. If you look back about the past year or so, I believe the church of Jesus Christ is quite distracted, and we just need to keep making the clarion call and going back to being reminded, what is the plumb line? What's the focus? What's the priority? We need to fixate on that, and it is not always easy to do. Some distractions, these might sound familiar to you. Maybe you've been distracted by these topics. I think all of us have on one of these. We've been distracted by COVID-19, election results, the coronavirus, politics, the Wuhan virus, BLM, the worldwide pandemic, Antifa, the China virus, 
Notice I've said the coronavirus about six times. That was intentional. Inflation, masks, intersectionality, colored tears here in the Santa Clara County, not T-E-A-R-S that come from your eyes, T-I-E-R-S, ordinances. Critical race theory, racial justice, transgenderism, Netflix, riots, Facebook, UFOs. Why are you laughing? The offering, that's for church people. Climate change, that one is just never going to go away. These are distractions. I'm not saying that none of those aren't important, but being overly preoccupied with them, especially as a Christian, when they take our focus off what is really important in life, the Lord Jesus Christ, his truth and the gospel. Amen. What a gift from God that he calls his saints to worship corporately as a body, a minimum once a week on the Lord's day. He did that intentionally because we need that. He knows that. We need to be recalibrated and reoriented, get our focus back. So we go out into the world again. So let's try to get our focus back, focusing on the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, then in the last sermon, just briefly, I gave a description of the gospel, and I clarified the gospel with a simple definition. The reason I need to do that is because not only are we distracted, the gospel is constantly being diluted in terms of its definition, what it is out in the world, but also in the church, the church universal, uh, the, the Christian church, the American church. We talked about that. I was reminded that, of that again, that how the clear meaning of the gospel even among believers at times, is cloudy. We aren't quite sure. Is this part of the gospel or is it not? I had a couple of discussions like that this week with fellow believers. So we need clarity. Then a couple of well-known evangelical books, some that have sold quite well. Just reading their title is a great illustration of how muddled the church is and it's thinking about what is the gospel. Here's a popular book it's called The Church, subtitle, The Gospel Made Visible. Uh, that is not a helpful title. The Church, that's fine. And then The Gospel Made Visible, it, it, is, it seems like it is implying that the church is the gospel. So that's what we're trying to do, to clarify. For the record, I'll say it again, I said it in the last sermon. The church is not the gospel. Because remember what gospel means? Good news. The church is good news. Well, who's the church? We are, or get more personal, I am, Pastor Cliff, put it all together. Pastor Cliff is good news. No, he is not. <laughs> you aren't either. You are a hypocrite. Sorry. I am a hypocrite. We are not good news. Jesus is. He's the only good news. It's really that simple. And I just have to keep coming back and hammering away on it. We have got to get that out of our mind, our theology, and out of our vocabulary. That we are the good news. We live the good news. We do the good news. We do the gospel. We put the gospel on display. No, we don't. It's really simple. If you need reminders, or maybe you didn't hear the first sermon, I laid that foundation down very clearly. Here's another title of a book living the gospel. We don't live the gospel. 
going back to that other title, the gospel made visible. Very ironic because the gospel is not visible. It is invisible. It cannot be seen. It can't be perceived by the five senses of a human being. It's not empirical. It is appropriated simply by faith. Hebrews 11.1 is very clear. We believe the gospel by faith. Faith is a supernatural gift from God that he gives us. And faith has to do with things we can't see. So it's not visible. We believe it by faith. So, again, just being reminded of trying to clarify once again the definition. I described the gospel. I gave a description, a definition, and then a delineation of the gospel. So by way of reminder, my description of the gospel was very simple. In simplest terms, the gospel is a, thank you, message. We know that because that's what Paul said. It is a message. It's a definitive message. It's a simple message. It's a complete message. It's a supernatural message. It's a comprehensive message. It's an efficacious message. Divine message from God. But it is a message. And the number one verb used in the New Testament of what we do regarding the gospel is proclaim it. We don't live it. We don't display it. We don't do it. We don't rehearse it. We proclaim the gospel because it's all about Jesus Christ. It's what he did, not what we do. If I go around telling people I'm the gospel, I will confuse them. I will mislead them. I will say that the gospel is not clear. You go door-to-door evangelism, and a lot of time you're talking to people who aren't Christians, and they will say boldly, the church is full of hypocrites, and you know what? I have to agree with them. Actually, I'm one of them. Sorry for being a stumbling block to the true gospel, Jesus Christ, who is perfect and sinless. And the only Savior. So the church is not the gospel, although the church is the steward of the gospel. The church is the defender of the gospel. The church is the pillar of the truth, says Second Timothy or Timothy. The church is to be the proclaimer and the advancer of the gospel. So the church is involved, but don't say the church is the gospel. That's the most fundamental, categorical, theological mistake that someone could make in terms of terminology. Uh, The definition that I gave of the gospel was, I said it was a finite message, so it's a complete message. You can wrap your brain around it. It's a finite message about an infinite person, Jesus Christ, and his finished work. It is done. That is the definition. And then I, now what we're talking about is the delineation of the content of the gospel or the details of the gospel. And that's what we're going over right now. That's what we're going to highlight right now, particularly in verses three and four. What are the details of the gospel? We need to do that because even after the sermon that I preached last time, remember the gospel quiz where I gave 10 questions? Yes, I know. I had some feedback on that. Uh, I had some people that were upset, cornered me after church after that because they didn't like my answers, but that's okay. At least it prompted discussion, which is what I wanted to do. Not a fist fight, but a discussion. And it was healthy, it was edifying, good stuff. So we had those 10 simple questions about what the gospel is. And then I raised another question that wasn't in that gospel quiz in my theology class on Wednesday night. We're going to talk about that as well. Uh, That spurred some really good dialogue. And uh, that will be in one of our points here. So uh, that's just a reminder of what we covered in the last week. So now let's go back to the text of 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll just walk through verses 1 through... Four or five, 
and really camping out on verses 3 and 4, which would be the details or the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so here are our six points. Uh, number one was the explanation of the word gospel. We already did that. The explanation. And gospel means? Good news. It is a message, but it's gospel literally means good news. And that's what we proclaim. We go out and proclaim good news to helpless, sinful, hopeless people to give them hope, the only hope. It's good news. That's what it means. Not good advice. Not a suggestion. It's actually a regal mandate from on high. That's the gospel. Good news. So that was the explanation of the word gospel. Then number two, we covered most of point number two, which was the expectation of the gospel. And that was verses one and two, the expectation. What do I mean by that? The expectation from us. God is the source of the gospel. God is the author of the gospel. God is the subject of the gospel. God initiated the gospel. God planned the gospel in eternity past. But there is an expectation from fallen, finite humans with respect to the gospel. This trips people up, even believers, in different ways for some reason. But Paul says it right here in verses 1 and 2. He says there is an expectation regarding the gospel. Yes, God is the one who saves. He initiates salvation. But there's an expectation on the part of the people. And he uses four different verbs or verb forms to make that known very clearly. And here's what I mean by the expectation that stumps Christians or causes them to do a double take in thinking through the answer to this question. It's a real simple question. Here's the question that I recently posed to a bunch of Christians. Do people do anything to be saved? Do people do anything to be saved? That was my question. It was in written form. Do, do people do anything to be saved? The supermajority of people said no. And then I had to break the news and say, well, no, that, the answer is yes. I'll read it again. Do people do anything to be saved? Which the, a very similar question is, do sinners do anything to be saved? And many Christians, when I ask them that, they'll say no. And I'll say, well, no, actually, the answer is yes. Then we'll have that discussion. Those two questions are very similar to this one. Listen, do people have to do something to be saved? And I'd say, yeah. But most Christians that I talk to, they say no. Those three questions are similar to this question. Number four, can sinners do something to be saved? The answer is, well, yes. Those four questions are similar to this question. Personalizing it. Personalizing it to the point of, say, you're talking to somebody who's not a believer, but they're maybe interested, and they might ask this question. Do I need to do anything to be saved? How would you respond to that unbeliever when you're doing evangelism? Would you say no? Do I need to do anything to be saved? That question is very similar to this one, if they ask this one. Oh, so tell, say you told them no. No, you don't need to do anything to be saved. Then they might follow up and say, oh, okay, so I don't have to do anything to be saved? And if you said, well, yes, that's correct. So I just stand here and do nothing? Am I going to get zapped? How does it work? I was with the gentleman in a car, his car, and we were talking about the gospel. And after an hour of talking, this is what he asked me. Do I need to do anything to be saved? I didn't tell him no. Those six questions that I just read, they're similar to this one. Quote, what must I do to be saved? 
I didn't make that one up. It's in the Bible. Acts chapter 16, verse 30. The convicted, desperate, hopeless Philippian jailer went to the Apostle Paul and said, What must I do to be saved? Paul did not say, Nothing. Paul said just the opposite. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Those seven questions are similar to this one. Quote, what are we to do to be saved? I didn't make that up either. That's in Acts chapter 2, verses 21 and 37. Peter preached the gospel message, laid it out, who God is, who Jesus is, what the gospel is. The Spirit of God did His work convicting of guilt and sin on the listeners. They were pierced to the heart, and the spokesperson blurted out, what are we to do to be saved? Peter didn't say nothing. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Those eight questions are similar to this one. Quote, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what shall I do to be saved? Do I need to do anything to be saved? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I didn't make it up. This was a lawyer who asked Jesus that question in public. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus didn't say, oh, do nothing. Sit there, get zapped. Be passive. No, actually... Jesus' answer was, love God and love your neighbor. That was the answer. You want to be saved? You want to be right with God? Then do the Ten Commandments and all 613 laws of the Mosaic Law perfectly, and you will be saved. No human can do that. Those nine questions are similar to this one. Quote, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That one sounds the exact same as the question I just read. It's because they are. The first one in Luke 10 was asked by a lawyer who was trying to trick Jesus. This question was asked by someone who was sincere and really wanted to know the answer. They went to Jesus in desperation that everything this world had to offer. It's the rich, young ruler, and he asked Jesus. In essence, what must I do to be saved? Can I do anything to be saved? Should I do anything to be saved? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 18, 18. Jesus didn't say, oh, nothing. Jesus said, sell all your possessions and give all your money to the poor. That's a startling answer. Well, the rich young ruler knew he couldn't do that. So he turned his back on Jesus and walked away sad. Gospel of Mark says Jesus loved that man compassionate savior so let me ask the question again and see how you do do people need to do anything to be saved do sinners need to do anything to be saved do people have to do something to be saved can sinners do something to be saved must I do something to be saved what shall I do to inherit eternal life the answer is yes you have to do something listen to this Here's what scripture says you have to do. If you're a sinner and you don't know God, you need to do something to be saved. You need to, actually, there's 24 different verbs that I wrote down that you have to do in order to be saved. If you're not a Christian, if you're a Christian, I'm not talking to you. If you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, 
I'm talking to you. In order to be saved, that means to be born again, to have eternal life, to have forgiveness of sin, to know your creator properly, to allow you the right to have eternal life and go to heaven, to keep you from going to hell eternally, to release you from being an enemy of God, to transfer you from the kingdom of Satan that you're currently in into the kingdom of his beloved son, you need to do something if you're not a Christian. You need to do these 25 verbs, and every one of these verbs, for the most part, is a synonym for one command, and it is believe. It is believe. So, does a person have to do something in order to be saved? And I'd say, yes, we have to, to put it all in one word, we have to respond. Don't be confused. For me saying that you have to do something to be saved, I'm not an Arminian, whatever that is. Not an Armenian who's from Armenia. An Armenian is the guy that lived in the 1600s who was counteracting John Calvin, Jacob Arminius, who basically didn't believe in election, didn't believe that God was completely sovereign in calling those who would be saved before the foundation of the world, and put a priority on human volition and human will that says, my fate, my eternal life is contingent upon my decision. I did it, not God. So the debate between historic Calvinism and Arminianism really comes down to one question. Who made the first move? Was it God or man in salvation? That's what it is. Who took action first? Well, God did. The Bible's clear about that. He planned salvation. He made the plan for salvation by sending the Savior. He determined this before the foundation of the world. He called those whom he was going to save by his sovereign choice for his good pleasure according to his will. Human beings had nothing to do with it. So God determined salvation. He plans salvation. He lays out the uh, methodology of how we might be saved. He gives the means by which we must be saved. He gives us the truth regarding how we can be saved. He gives us the gift of faith so that we can participate and believe literally in him so that we might be saved. It is all of God in terms of the initiate. He made the first move, so don't be confused there. So God makes the first move in salvation. He proclaims the gospel by which you must be saved. And once that proclamation is made formally through human agents today, through us, through Christians, through our mouth, through the proclamation of the word, and an unbeliever hears that gospel, that unbeliever is now obligated like they've never been before. They are now called by God to respond. They have one choice. They must respond. And they're accountable to God for their response. The only appropriate response that God accepts is responding by believing. Responding by faith. But many will respond by rejecting the gospel and unbelief. Here are those 25 verbs that a sinner must do in order to be right with God or saved. And they include Old Testament imperatives and commands as well as New Testament ones. A sinner must humble yourself, follow, come to me, hear my words, act on my words, choose, knock, ask, seek, Repent, call on the name of the Lord, believe, obey, open the door, lose your life, forsake, understand, eat, drink, buy, confess, receive, to be born again, work. Uh-oh. From the Gospel of John. Well, let me read the whole verse. If you want to be saved, you must work. Jesus said, work for the food 
that lasts for eternal life. Work for the teaching that will impart to you eternal life. And Jesus goes on to explain what is the work of God. And he says, believing. Believing. See, these are all synonyms for believe. We respond to the grace of God that he gives in the gospel. And the last one, number 24, trust. So when we go out and proclaim the gospel, share the gospel, give the gospel, we should expect the sinner to respond. And if they want to get right with God, they got to do one of those. Ultimately, they have to believe it. So hopefully that brings some clarity to that issue. Again, salvation is all of God, all of his grace. He ordains everything, and he even ordains the means by which we shall be saved as humans. And that is by believing in response to his glorious, glorious truth. So number one was the explanation. Number two, the expectation of the gospel, and that's respond by believing. And then number three, the origination of the gospel. Let's look at chapter 15, verse 3. So now we get into the uh, content of the gospel proper. What is actually this message made up of? What are the main elements of this gospel we're supposed to be preaching that changes a sinner from a saint? The origination of the gospel. By origination, I means what is the origin of this message? that we're entrusted with. What's the origin? Where did it come from? Who made it up? Who authored it? There's some debate about that. Well, Paul's clear. The origination of the gospel, the origin or the source of the gospel, simply stated, it's heaven. That's where it came from. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, you fellow Christians who are in Corinth, I, I delivered to you, uh, I preached a gospel to you. I, gave, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this message of the gospel that I'm giving to you, it's not mine. It's not Paul's. I didn't make it up. I'm not the author. I don't have a different gospel than Peter and Jesus and that Abraham got in Genesis 12. I got it. Somebody gave it to me, the Lord Jesus Christ. I received it and I delivered it unto you. I delivered it to you from on high. So the origin of the gospel message is from heaven. It is from God. This has nothing to do with human beings. As a matter of fact, when you think about what the gospel is, the essence of the gospel, the gospel, the idea is that this lowly, humble Jew who grew up in obscurity that nobody even knew about for the first 33 years of his life left home, and for the next three and a half years had no place to lay his head. His own family members really wanted nothing to do with him, at least his siblings. Everywhere he went, he just did good to people. But for the most part, he was rejected, especially by the most important people in the society, the religious leaders of the same religion that he espoused to believe in. He was poor. He had nothing. He was humble. He looked like any other ordinary human being. And then at the end of his life, He's accused, he's imprisoned, he's subjected to queries from the authorities on high, and they condemn him with a sentence to be crucified. He was brutalized, he was whipped, he was stripped naked, he was mocked and humiliated, forced to carry his own cross, nailed to a cross by the Romans, and the only people who got nailed to a cross were convicted guilty criminals worthy of death. That was his fate. And he hung on this cross for six plus hours one day for all to see, apparently utterly helpless. All of his friends, for the most part, had forsaken him. He died and was buried. 
That's the savior of the world? Well, Gentiles looking at that, Romans looking at that, Greeks looking at that, who had no context of Old Testament history, they looked at that. You mean this, this convicted criminal who was executed, who had nothing that the entire nation rejected, including his family and his friends? That's your savior? That is a joke. That was their conclusion. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That the Greeks considered the gospel foolishness, absurdity, a joke. And that same gospel message to the Jews who had the Old Testament, they had a different spin on it. They had a different take. They knew the book of Deuteronomy. Where God said, here are all these penalties for various sins. For blasphemy and other sins, that deserves the death penalty. And here's one of the ways that you enact the death penalty. Some people are pummeled with stones. Some are burned to fire and some, are, some of them are hung up on a tree. Cursed is he who's hung up on a tree. Cursed is the one criminal who's ever killed and executed by hanging on a tree. The Jews in Jesus' day look at the so-called Messiah, called himself Messiah, called himself Son of David, and the religious leaders who were Jews of that day, knowing their Old Testament, knowing Deuteronomy, that God could never use anybody who was hanging, crucified, cursed on a tree, cursed, anathema, given over to Satan. That's your Savior? Really? To the Jews, the message of the gospel was a stumbling block. So those were the only two human interpretations of the origin of this gospel. But Paul makes it clear, no, uh, my gospel didn't come from man. No human being could, could think up this stuff. No human being in the history of the world could ever invent the idea of the gospel of the way God instituted it and the way it plays out. It is completely absurd and it is a stumbling block. There's no way to believe it with human rationality. God has to give the supernatural gift of faith to give clarity of thinking to override our sin and short-sightedness. To see actually what genius the gospel is. Where it satisfies justice and grace all in one. There is no other comparable human message. Galatians chapter 1. Just listen to the Apostle Paul speaking of the origin of this unique gospel. That no other religion in the world has or possesses. That no other human in the history of the world has ever conjured up or thought of. That no other philosophy or ideology of the world even comes close to having a counterpart to match its glory. The only message that saves the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's Paul's origin. He said in Galatians chapter 1, For I would have you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that the gospel, the good news, the message that was preached to you by me is not according to man. It is not according to humanity. No human being authored it. The apostles didn't author it. Peter didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. Even in Galatians chapter 1, 8 and 9, angels didn't make it up. Verse 12, for I neither received it from any human being, nor was I taught it. Well, how'd you get the gospel, Paul, that saved sinners? I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So at some point, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul and gave the Apostle Paul direct revelation. The Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, got saved. And then Jesus said, you know what? You are a horrible, wicked, the worst sinner that ever existed. So write that down in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then I saved you in my grace, and not only am I saving you, 
the worst sinner of all time, I am calling you to be an apostle and representative of me. And here's the message that I want you to share. Don't mess it up. That's the Living McManus translation. And Paul was faithful to do that. So he got this divine, direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's what the gospel message is. That's its origin. The origination of the gospel is heavenly, supernatural, divine, special revelation. Not according to man. Thank you, Paul. And we're entrusted to care for and protect and be stewards of that glorious message. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Number four. After the origination of the gospel, what is the information of the gospel? So these are the specific elements and contents of what makes up that gospel message. When you're going around the neighborhood, hi neighbor, Creekside Bible Church. I'd like to tell you, I'd like to give you some good news. I'd like to give you the gospel. So when we have that opportunity, we want to be able to give the whole gospel, not part of the gospel, if at all possible, but the whole gospel, the complete gospel. Specific elements of the gospel. They need to hear that. They, an unbeliever needs to hear all the main elements of the gospel for the Spirit of God to do his work to convict that sinner and bring them to repentance so that they can believe in the full content of the gospel so that they might be saved, transformed. Anybody here that's a Christian, you did not get saved apart from hearing the gospel. The only reason you got saved is because you heard, you, at one point or over the course of many conversations, you heard the whole gospel, Amen. the minimum elements of it. What are those? They're in verse 3 and 4. The information of the gospel. We can be distracted and talk about all kinds of stuff. When I'm talking to an unbeliever and I want them to be saved, you should be focused. And if you can narrow it down to a question, what is the main thing that I want to know that that unbeliever thinks, if I could know it? What would it be? What's the main thing that I want to know, an unbeliever, that I want to know what they think? It's pretty easy and it's very specific tell you what it's not because sometimes we get distracted if I'm talking to an unbeliever and I want them to get saved uh, I don't want to I'm not interested primarily in what their view about God is because I already know if they're not a Christian I already know what they believe about God if I'm talking to an atheist or an agnostic I already know what he believes about God he thinks he doesn't believe in God and I know he does believe in God he's lying that's Romans 1 so I don't need to know what he thinks about God I already know He's an enemy of God. He's hostile to God. He hates God. He's afraid of God. He's running from God. He's making excuses not to believe in God. So that's not what I want to know from an unbeliever. I don't want to know about his religion. I don't want to know what he thinks about creation versus evolution. I already know what he thinks. The only reason I believe in creation in six days is because that's what the Bible says. I didn't believe that before I got saved. I believed it after I got saved. Because the Spirit of God opened my eyes to see the truth. So I'm not going to get distracted talking about creation and evolution. I don't care what his view on abortion is. Because if he's not a Christian, it could be very likely that he's not pro-life. He's pro-abortion. That that makes sense. You're, you are a child of the devil, said Jesus in John 8. That makes sense. It's consistent with your worldview. I'm not going to focus on that. I don't want to know what his view about hell is. I'll talk about hell and I have to in the gospel, but I already know what his view of hell is. I don't want to know his view about the Bible because you'll just go in circles about that. That's a distraction. That's a smokescreen. Well, the Bible's got errors. I'm not going to be distracted. I don't want to know what he thinks about election. Another distraction. I don't want to know what he thinks about evil or the problem of evil in the world. I already know what he thinks. The one thing I want to know that that unbeliever thinks, I want to know what he thinks about Jesus. 
And I'm just going to be fixated on that topic. And it's going to make him uncomfortable. He probably won't want to talk about it. Sometimes they will. But that's what Paul said the gospel is. That's the content. That's verse 3 and 4. Look at it. The information of the gospel. What is it? It's Christ. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Here's priority number one of the gospel, of the good news, of information given from on high that changes people's destinies forever. Priority number one. That's what Paul means when he says of first importance. Don't talk about these secondary matters. They are important, but there's an order. Talk about this first, of first importance, what I also receive. Well, what is it, Paul? That Christ, that is the gospel. That's what we focus on. Christ, Mashiach, the anointed one. It's not Jesus' personal name. Jesus is his personal name. And Christ is who he is. Christ is an Old Testament word. Yahweh, God predicted, he would send his Christ to be savior of the world. He would send his Christ to be judge of the world. And that's who Jesus is. He came in fulfillment of that. He is the Christ. Christ, another word for king, the anointed one. Jesus is king. When we evangelize and talk to unbelievers, we focus on Christ, on Jesus, who he is, what he did. That's what Paul does right here. The content of the gospel is who Jesus is and what he did. Christ. So you've got to explain thoroughly to an unbeliever who Christ is. And you've got to use the whole Bible. And there are some priority points you've got to get across. This week, no, less than... 24 hours ago, I'm talking to a Hindu, a very informed Hindu on the religions of the world. I mentioned Jesus. Oh, yeah. Good teacher, philosopher. Christianity and Hinduism. Oh, yeah, very similar. Both monotheism, one God. Oh, yeah. It's like he agreed with everything I said. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sin, bad things. Oh, yeah. I'm like thinking, oh, no. Let's go back to Jesus. Let's clarify here. And I did. You, you don't believe, Hinduism doesn't teach and believe the same thing about what the Bible says about Jesus. You've got to let them know who, who is Jesus. Well, first and foremost, he's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's Elohim. God created the heavens and the earth. The New Testament says that Jesus created everything. John chapter 1. That sets him apart from every human being in the history of the world. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't become a god. In Hinduism, men work to become gods. In Christianity, God became a man. It's the exact opposite. They're not the same. Jesus is eternal God. He is uncreated. He is the creator. He's the judge of every soul, even if you don't believe in him. Ezekiel 18, God said, every soul is mine and every soul that sins shall die. John chapter 5, Jesus is the judge of every soul. These are the things they need to hear. You got to be very specific. Oh, you believe in Jesus? Really? He was a holy man? Oh, yeah. Do you believe he's eternal? He has always existed as the person of Jesus? Do you believe that he's the creator and made all things? Do you believe that he's the judge and will judge every soul, including yours? Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you believe that as a man, he was God who became a man? He was 100% God and 100% man in his human body? Do you believe that Jesus was the only person in the history of the world who never sinned? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus, even as a man, was God in a body to the point that human beings worshipped him and he deserves all worship? And he's the only way to God the Father. He's the only way to heaven. So those are the things you need to clarify about Jesus Christ. And that he 
not only who Jesus is. So you've got to make it clear in their mind because virtually all the philosophies and major religions of the world say they believe in Jesus. Does Islam believe in Jesus? Yes. His name is in the Quran 96 times. So you can't just talk surface. Oh, you've got to believe in Jesus. Well, I believe in Jesus. Do Mormons believe in Jesus? Yes. They are called the Church of Jesus Christ. It's their name of Latter-day Saints. It's printed on the Book of Mormon. Do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus? Absolutely. Do Hindus believe in Jesus? Absolutely. I have a friend who's a Hindu. He says he believes in Jesus. Jesus worked his way to deity. You can too, Cliff. That's his understanding. Christ, first word of the gospel. This person, this is what it's all about. He is the good news. He is the Savior. He is the only Savior. Christ, who he is and also what he did. The things that Paul mentions here that he did, he died. What else did he do? He was buried. What else did he do? He was raised from the dead. So you've got to talk about those three things. He died and was buried in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So he fulfilled prophecy. This was planned by the God of the universe. Jesus came to do one thing. Live a perfect life and die for sinners and be raised again from the dead. All according to plan. So he died. He was buried and he was raised. And we have to explain what that means. So we do have to talk about death because it's right there. This is the gospel. Talk about Christ. Exhaust it. Be thorough. Ask questions. Make sure they understand. There's no confusion. You don't want them in Matthew 7 saying to Jesus in ignorance, Lord, Lord, I never knew, I knew you. And then Jesus says, no, I, ne I never knew you. We don't want that to happen. Be clear. So you got to talk about Jesus' death. Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. He was crucified on a cross. He was executed. He did it willingly, yet he never did anything wrong to deserve it. He did it willingly, yet he was murdered. He did it. It happened to him unjustly, yet the Father planned it before the foundation of the world. It's the worst travesty that's ever happened in the history of the world, and it's the most glorious event in the history of the world. That Jesus died for sinners. So you've got to talk about Jesus died and why he died. Why did he die? Because God because he had to die for sin. And then you've got to talk about sin. So you've got to talk about death, death and sin. Sin is evil. We are all, everybody understands that message. I don't care what religion or society you're from. You just start talking about sin. Oh, bad things. No, I'm not talking about bad things. Sin, an offense against God, your creator, the one who made you, who gave you a soul, who gave you life and breath, the one you're accountable to. The last time you breathe your last breath, you will be before his judge and you will have to give an account. That God that you sinned against. He is holy. You are not. We are not. An offense against God. It's breaking His law. And He hates sin. God hates sin. He must punish sin. And He must punish it with one thing. That is death. Blood. That's how specific you got to get. Now you can tone it down a little bit. Nice conversation. But the idea is to be clear and thorough. We must talk about why Jesus died. Jesus died because he needed to be punished for sin because God the Father, the Holy God, hates sin. The only way to appease God or forgive sin is that somebody needs to die. Blood needs to be shed. And it needs to be a perfect sacrifice. Otherwise, God will not be satisfied. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He died as a substitute on behalf of sinners. What happened when he was hanging on the cross? God the Father, supernaturally, invisibly for six hours, was pouring out his full fury of infinite wrath on Jesus Christ because he hates sin so much. He was punishing Jesus on behalf of sinners. God hates sin. 
and it warrants or deserves death. And Jesus died for sinners as their substitute and absorbed the full wrath of an infinite almighty God. Because Jesus is infinite himself, an infinite sacrifice. And he did it out of a heart of love for sinners. Christ died for our sins. Notice how personal that is for me. Can you say Jesus died for you? Yeah, if you're a Christian, you can. Can you say Jesus loves me? Yeah. Paul did. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible does tell me so. Jesus died for our sins, all of my sins, past, present, present, and future. And the cleansing just goes on and on and on. And God's grace is greater than all of my sin. Amen. Isn't that good news? That's why we come to church on Sundays. We've got to keep hearing that message. So what did he do? Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. So the fact that these two verbs, died and buried, they're, they're in the aorist tense. That's just a simple past tense, and all it means is just emphasizing those are two historical realities. They really did happen. He actually did die. Some religions say he didn't. He was buried, confirmed his death, just like Scripture said. And then it says, what else did he do? He was raised. King James, King James 1611 said, rose, <clears throat> bad translation, confusing. New American Standard, Jesus was buried and that he was raised. That's a good translation. It's a perfect tense, not an aorist tense. What does that mean? Well. It's a historical reality. It happened in the past, but it's got ongoing, continuous results. In other words, Jesus did rise historically in the past, but he is still risen. He is still alive. That's good news. He is the risen Savior. We don't refer to Jesus in the past tense. Who was Jesus? That's not the right question. Who is Jesus? He is the reigning king from heaven. That's who he is because he is risen and he's coming again. That's all wrapped up in a perfect passive indicative verb that's what it means he's alive he was raised from the dead by the way the resurrection is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ people there are people preaching the gospel saying the resurrection isn't part of the gospel no you have to believe in the resurrection as part of the gospel in order to be saved and you certainly can't deny the resurrection and be a Christian the full gospel includes the resurrection. Jesus, who he was, the God-man, creator, eternal one, judge of every soul, died on behalf of sinners because, because God hates sin and must punish sin. And if you don't have forgiveness of sin, you will not go to heaven. You will go to hell forever. But God in his love and God in his grace sent his own beloved son his perfect beloved son to die in the place of as a substitute for wretched sinners so that he might absorb the wrath that was deserved for us so that God will forgive all of our sins so that we can have eternal life and a restored relationship with the creator and have no eternal life now in this life and eternity with God forever and ever and ever that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't have to do anything to acquire this. This is all the work of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All out of His grace and His love and mercy for sinners. All we have to do is understand, hear the message, understand the message, embrace and welcome the message, believe the message. You do that, you will be saved. Invited and adopted into the family of God and secure with Him forever and ever and ever. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we go out and preach... 
We've got to give the gospel, the simple gospel, yet the complete gospel. We have to explain the gospel, teach the gospel, ask questions about the gospel, check for understanding is what it's called. And all of the elements, who Jesus is, that he's unique from any human that ever lived in every other religion. What he did, that he died and rose again. What did he do it for? On behalf of sin. And you've got to personalize that for the person you're talking to. I don't care if you say you don't think you're a sinner. You are. You're in grave danger, literally, from your creator. And you only have one solution. And that is by embracing Jesus Christ, the Savior. That is the information or the content of the gospel. Number five, the confirmation of the gospel. Real simple. That's just verse five. Uh, that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5 says, and that Jesus appeared. See, he's alive. He's the living one. Living one. He rose from the dead and he was alive. He appeared for 40 days to his disciples. He was very selective about he, who he appeared to. He appeared to over 500 witnesses during that time before he ascended back into heaven. This is very important uh, because what is this? Number 5, it's the confirmation of the gospel. It's the validation of the gospel, that it is historically true. In other words, this is the evidence. Is there evidence that Christianity is true? Well, yes, there is. Some of the evidence is right here. This is very important evidence, verse 5. This isn't a fairy tale. Somebody didn't just make this up. There were eyewitnesses who were real historical people. They were reliable witnesses. They gave their life as witnesses. And they all said the same thing. And it's a plurality of witnesses. Which according to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, you couldn't validate truth unless you had a plurality of eyewitnesses. Do we have a plurality? Two or three or more. Verse 5. And Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and to the twelve. Okay, that's 13 witnesses. Oh, verse 6. And after he appeared to more than 513 witnesses. That's more than enough. That is legal evidence. It's valid evidence. It's ongoing evidence. It's available evidence for us. It's written permanent evidence. It's time-tested evidence. Is there evidence for Christianity and the fact that Jesus was real, that he died for sinners, and rose again from the dead? Yes, there is. It's right here. The most reliable witnesses in the history of the world because the Spirit of God was moving on those witnesses to validate the message so that they spoke with one voice, in sync, undeniable. You can count on it. We accept this kind of witness in courtrooms today. That was God's point. That is the confirmation of the gospel. That's the objective evidence. There is a supernatural kind of evidence that comes from the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you if you're a Christian. And He confirms in your heart and in your soul that what you believe about Christ is true. That's an internal, supernatural, spiritual, you can call it subjective evidence if you want to, but it's real. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said the same thing. I know whom I have believed and am confident. That is very personal. Romans 8, that's the work of the Spirit of God. So we have evidence and confirmation for this truth. And then finally, number 6. Well, now what do we do? We got the gospel. It's clear in our mind. I'm a steward of it. I have been saved. It's the only thing that changes people's lives. I have relatives who are not saved. I have neighbors, co-workers. The proclamation of the gospel. It's a mandate. Matthew 28. Every Christian. Male, female. Doesn't matter. It's a mandate. I'll remind you that the, the verb used most frequently in the New Testament of what we do with the gospel is proclaim it. That's what we do. We proclaim a message. A specific message. 
And it's all about Jesus Christ and what he did for sinners. And for me, just this is for me over the years, what the best starting point for me of any conversation. You can talk about the gospel to anybody. There are no prerequisites, by the way. You don't have to go through an hour's worth of haranguing and explaining and delineating the cosmological argument that never refers to the Bible to win permission with your fellow unbeliever that you might address the Bible and that they might maybe consider it with all probability that maybe it has some truth as you're apologetically afraid to use your Bible. We don't need to do that. To proclaim means to just give forth as an edict. Here it is. Here's the truth. Here's what God said. I'm responsible. I'm just a messenger. Here's what it says. They may like it. They may not like it. They may thank you. They may punch you. It doesn't matter. Here's the gospel. There's no prerequisites. But one of my starting points, because you could maybe you have 60 seconds or an hour, but this always works. Just do what Jesus did. Here's one of his favorite questions. To, if Jesus wanted to get a conversation going, here's what he would say. Matthew 16. Who do men say that I am? Boom! He blows up the whole audience. And they're off to the races. I've found that to be very effective. In a group, wherever you are, or just with an individual. What do you think about Jesus? You know what? Most people will actually answer that if you ask them a question. Instead of telling them, who Jesus, Jesus is God and you need to bow the knee. They might not receive that. But if you just ask them, who do you think Jesus is? Oh, let me tell you. Because a lot of people are very excited about tell you, to tell you what they think. Because they know so much. That's why that question is so wonderful. Jesus did it several times. Who do men say that I am? Then Peter goes on. Oh, they're saying this, this, and this. About, boy, there's a lot of confusion about you, Jesus. And then Peter takes it back. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, Lord, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only Savior for humanity. You are the King. And Jesus commands Peter. You know what, Peter? You didn't get that from any human being. You didn't learn it. You weren't taught it in the synagogue. In, in His grace, God the Father, He revealed that to you. That wonderful, blessed, life-changing truth. So I would just encourage you as you go out and do proclamation. By the way, we had a wonderful day yesterday here at the church, uh, Evangelism Saturday, that, uh, that Austin put together for us. We had over 60 people, time of training, uh, went over the content of the gospel, broke up into 15-plus teams, went around, canvassed the neighborhood, knocking on doors, talking to people from the religions of the world, talking to a Christian. Oh, you're already saved. All right, I'll go to the next door. So that was kind of fun. And we hope to have more of those uh, on a regular basis so that our saints have an opportunity in that uh, medium or method to go out and share the gospel and talk about these things. So, Oh, coming up in uh, one month on July... July number 10. Put it on your calendar. Saturday. You'll get more information soon. If you weren't there because you were out of town or just weren't able to, I would really encourage you to come. And even if you're maybe a little feeling uncomfortable, you can go and just shadow door to door. and You don't have to say anything. Just, uh, just watch and you'll learn. You'll be blessed. You can be praying on the sidewalk as your teammates are uh, talking with the neighbors. So just a blessed event and wonderful opportunity. So with that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Thank you for... Thank Him for His glorious gospel. Uh, just wonderful truths for us as believers to meditate upon as we think about our frailty and the things that frighten us in this life and get caught up in our own sin and we're drowning in our own guilt. We don't do the gospel, but we sure can keep meditating on the gospel and how glorious Jesus is as He refreshes our soul again and again. Let's thank Him for it. Father, we thank You for this day.
time to be with the saints, to time to worship you, to be reminded of your word, the scriptures you've entrusted to our care and preserved by your grace and goodness through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the reminder of the gospel, the good news. God, I thank you for every person that is listening that you have saved in your grace, and they know the good news that I'm talking about. It resonates with their soul on a very personal level. God, thank you for ongoing forgiveness of sin, for being adopted into your family, knowing you as Father, Jesus as our brother, the Spirit as our comforter who lives in us, gives us hope in this life. God, I pray for those that any of us knows that is not a Christian. Many that we've been praying for for years, we wouldn't give up. We would continue to persevere. We keep praying for their salvation, that the work of your Spirit would bring a conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, remove the blinders of deception, of sin, of Satan, that they might be saved. We entrust all of this to you. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.